0: Alison. Hi, Sarah. Been to any restaurants recently? Ha, huh, I wish. Well, some people <laughs> have. Uh, this, there was this scandal last week of this secretly recorded meal uh, in a Paris apartment served All by right. a top chef, you remember? Yeah, yeah. And a former minister, Brice Orte, for admitting he was there. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And his defense was, I didn't realize it was a restaurant, Mm, right? He paid for food cooked by somebody else in a place that wasn't his house. But it wasn't a restaurant. Mm. As the COVID lockdown continues here in
0: France, things are becoming increasingly absurd. (laughs) Yeah, the the rules are not the same for everyone, are they? Now, bona fide restaurants are supposedly reopening in May, Uh, the terraces at least.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what they say. Um, if, of course, the infection numbers go down, the the, or maybe even not. I don't know. That that they're really banking on these dates. Um, and there's a lot riding on vaccinations.
0: Yeah, I am now eligible. Ooh. Hmm. Should be getting Finally. it. So- yeah. <laughs> Finally, should be getting <laughs> it soon. If uh, I can get an appointment, which so are you far having trouble? Is, yeah. So far, it's not the case. I'm on three waiting lists. Anyway, uh, fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers
1: crossed. Yeah. Things will pick up. But I mean, the the issue there, of course, is all these different kinds of vaccines with the AstraZeneca and the Johnson and Johnson and having, you know, recalls and are they which one are you going to get and who's and where and oof, it's it's a big mess right now. Um, We're definitely not out of the woods yet.
0: No restaurants, but how about Notre-Dame Cathedral, Sarah, Have you been anywhere near there of late? Um, well, I biked by a few weeks ago. Um, it's definitely still surrounded by
1: construction, not at all accessible. There are big photos on the paneling around the site showing all the archaeological work going on inside, and it's all surrounded by cranes. I mean, lots of work going on there.
0: Yeah, after the fire, uh, mm-hmm. which happened two years ago today on the 15th of April.
1: Right, right. The roof was an inferno of flames. Mm. I mean, it was quite beautiful in its way. <laughs> Although it was shocking. And then the spire crumbling. I mean, really intense.
0: It was indeed. Uh, it made, of course, headline news all over the world. And because it took a while for that spire to, to collapse, the towering inferno, some people in Paris had time to rush over there and film it in real time and send those pictures all around the world.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was not one of those. I was watching mm. those pictures being sent. But I do remember sort of watching all night and the fear that the whole building was actually going to collapse. And that feeling of of relief, you know, in the middle of the night, or whenever I woke up the next morning when it actually hadn't, but there was a massive amount of damage.
0: Yeah, and there was a big outpouring of grief, wasn't there? Not just in France, in fact, but around the world, You, you realize just how attached people were and are to this Gothic monument, Our Lady, Notre Dame.
1: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. It's sort of a sense of permanence, I guess, that somehow was shattered. I mean, this is a building that dates back, what, to the 12th century? And then here in France, right, the fire came on the back of terrorist attacks and kind of made everyone feel even more insecure.
0: But despite those initial and very, very dramatic images, much of the cathedral was thankfully preserved, like the the main bell towers, the outside walls and some of the vaulted ceiling survived, as did many of the religious relics and the artworks inside the church, so it wasn't quite as bad as we initially feared. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course,
1: then immediately afterwards, there were all these debates about the reconstruction, right? Like Mm -hmm. how to do it, um, who's going to pay for it, how it was going to be paid for, when it would get done. Uh, President Emmanuel Macron promised it would be all rebuilt in five years. Not sure that's going (laughs) to happen.
0: Macron is always very optimistic about these things. (laughs) The last two years have been largely about securing the site, um, even before any restoration or reconstruction can begin, and also about depolluting it of all the lead. So Workers have been clearing out tons and tons of charcoal remains of the, the timber frame of the roof and then extracting what has some value in all of that. The work is more or less finished now, and much of it was done by workers on ropes, they're known as cordistes in French, and a team of archaeologists. Our colleague Lucille Jambert was one of the few journalists allowed to visit the site recently, and I put together this report based on her encounters. <laughs> Notre-Dame's old roof was entirely destroyed in the fire, so a temporary structure, 35 meters above the cathedral's nave, was built in its place, and it takes just a few minutes in the lift to get up there.
1: We put down this temporary flooring to reinforce the walls for a start, and to seal and protect the vaults as much as possible. That's
0: Guérin Chapnay, head of the team of rope workers. He sighs and looks down at a gaping hole, Notre Dame's wound.
1: This is precisely where the
0: church spire would have been, just above the cross vaults, which, sadly, were lost in the fire. This is where the rope technicians are carrying out their open-heart surgery. The damaged vaults are so fragile that machinery can't be used. Instead, the workers use cords to swing down onto the shoulders of what remains of the vaults. Michael Le Maire is supervising the workers who are wearing fully protective jumpsuits, hard hats, gloves and harnesses.
2: Là, leur travail. Their job is to clear up the vaults so that we can declare them safe. For the moment, they are not safe, so we can't put any weight on them. That's why we have this system of suspension, allowing us to just skim the vaults but without putting weight down.
0: It's challenging work. Using shovels without being able to put your feet down requires good balance and strength. The rope workers wear ventilated masks so that they don't breathe in the toxic lead dust. The roof contained tons of lead that melted in the blaze. Traces are still visible on the vaults. Le Maire remembers arriving with his team just a few days after the blaze on April the 15th,
2: 2019. Two days after the fire, it resembled a bomb site. Everything around us was black and twisted. I found it all a bit traumatising.
0: For a bit traumatising. Since then, he and the team have filled sack after sack of burnt out beams and charcoaled remains of the roof.
2: It may look like rubble, but these are fragments of Notre Dame, and even if they're burnt and degraded, they still have a historical value. Every time we bring an element up from a grid, it has to be registered so we know exactly where it came from. The cathedral has evolved over time, and each part of Notre-Dame is from a different era, whether it's the wood, stone, metal, or the way it was assembled. A
0: crane takes white bags full of the debris down onto the forecourt of Notre-Dame to be examined by a team of archaeologists.
2: Parmi toutes les trouvailles que j'ai pu faire
0: years, ces remember in particular having found a piece of the notre dans ces says ans, Olivier
2: Pure.
0: We also extracted fragments of the bells and the first nails, for les medieval nails, which are very large and well forged. In one of the marquees, archaeologist Dorothée Chawid-Derrieux spreads the black dusty earth onto pallets and sifts through to detect what needs to be kept and analyzed.
2: We recuperate all the little bits of metal, especially forged nails, elements from the assembly of the frame or spire fragments of wood, or big pieces of charcoal and glass, which
0: we can then analyze. These remains could provide new information about the cathedral's history. After all, Notre Dame was built, modified and restored at different periods since the 12th century. In
2: the 1990s, some of the timber frame was dated, but no more than 50 fragments or so. Now the whole frame is available, if you like, for scientific study, because this wood won't be used in the restoration. So we'll take wood samples, and they can provide us with a lot of information on the type of tree used, how old it is, the climate, and the construction period. Lots of information that we would never have had if the disaster happened
0: had happened. Several thousand stones also fell from the cathedral during the fire. It's the job of geologist Lise Leroux to examine each one because this dig isn't just about understanding the past, it can also help the reconstruction.
1: Pieces
0: of the arch of the nave that collapsed will give the architects an idea of the shape of the arch and how it should be restored or rebuilt. And the pieces which, despite the fire, are still in good condition, will we'll probably be able to reuse them and put them back into the cathedral. Leroux and Shaoui Derrieu are especially proud to show off two angels' heads from the compression ring of the cross piece, which, despite falling from a height, have remained almost intact. You can still
2: make out the angel's face with the gilding on its head.
0: It's a strange feeling because you think it's incredible they survived. Something of a miracle. A miracle from a disaster. For Michael Le Maire, like for many of the people who've been working on Notre Dame over the last two years, this building is now much more than a monument.
2: We've got the whole of Paris below and around us, and we're working on a living monument. I've started using the word she, which you wouldn't use on any other site. Now when we talk about the cathedral, we say we're taking care of her.
1: Alison, all these bits and pieces on the fragments from, from the cathedral, what's going to happen to them?
0: Well, they're shortly to be handed over to researchers in a hangar north of Paris, a very secret location. Ah, yes. yeah, some of them will then go back into the cathedral, others could become museum pieces.
1: It sounds like a lot of work, Um, and the reconstruction itself hasn't even started. I mean, I've read that there's even just a lot of drying out to do. All the water that firefighters poured on Mm. the site to put out the fire, the whole place is just still really damp.
0: Yeah, so still a lot of challenges and a long way to go, although President Emmanuel Macron is still hopeful that there can be mass for the general public in time for the 2024 Olympics in Paris. Qui aussi bien au gosse qui ont deux ans grand-père qui tombe en ruine et avec ça tu prendras bien un peu de fromage ah oui ils sont tellement bons ces fromages il faut toujours garder une petite place pour le fromage et c'est si beau When you think of France, you think of cheese, right? Hmm. General de Gaulle famously referred to France, didn't he, as the land of 258 yeah. cheeses. And how can you possibly govern a place with so many? Camembert, Emmental, and my personal favorite, Roquefort. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Vacherie. The Laughing Cow. I don't, uh-huh. Yeah, I don't think de Gaulle had that in mind. I mean, that, I mean <laughs> let's be honest, that's not cheese, is it?
1: Oh, but, but it is cheese. It is cheese. And it's 100 years old this week. It was born on the 16th of April, 1921, when Léon Bell filed the patent for his recipe
0: of spreadable cheese. Yeah, processed cheese in those lovely little triangles.
1: Yeah, yeah. At the time, it was packaged in tins, not in wedges. It was called modern cheese. Um, <laughs> a few years earlier, the Graf brothers, originally from Switzerland, they had set up in Jura, not far from where Belle was based in eastern France, and they'd started producing a spreadable Gruyere product. Bell realized this could be the solution for his own family's problems. They had a cheese ripening plant where they were taking cheeses from farmers and, and turning them into the Comté that you know yeah. now from the Jura. But by the end of World War I, they'd accumulated too much. These huge wheels of Comté, um, they were unable to sell it. Oh Bell decided that he would turn it into something else. So he mixed the Comté, the hard cheeses, with other cheeses like Gruyère and then mixed it in with milk and butter and heated it up this this new method and a hundred years ago this spreadable cheese was a novelty because of the processing at high temperatures the cheese was actually very stable and
0: it still is you know you can keep it out of the fridge for quite a while it's very handy Picnic. Yeah, yeah,
1: for sure. And this this was a new product in the 20s, but Bell wasn't the only one doing it. But what he was doing that was new and what was genius was the packaging mm-hmm. and the marketing. Um, the first Vashkiri was sold in a round metal tin and on it was a drawing of a red cow, a drawing by Léon Bell himself, the cow standing on four legs behind a sign that says La The Laughing Cow. The laughing cow we know today, the red and white head, was drawn by the illustrator Benjamin Radier, and legend has it he added the cheese box earrings at the urging of Belle's wife to make the cow more feminine.
0: Mm, Well, I suppose that does make sense, you know, in marketing terms, the cow, milk.
1: Milk, exactly. And I was always impressed, you know, by these the cheese box that has the cow on it, that has the cheese earrings, that has the cow and sort of never-ending mirror effect. As a kid, I was always very interested in that. Anyway, the, the new Laughing Cow appeared in 1924 this on these round cardboard boxes and then with the individually silver wrapped wedges that we know today and the whole Vashkiri became an icon. Bell was amazing at marketing. He figured out how to put the image on on stuff. By the 30s there were Laughing Cow emblazoned Playing cards and ink blotters and any promotional objects you can imagine at the time, there were radio broadcasts. Um, there was the song, this one the by the aptly named Constantin Laurieur, singing La Vachekiri. Dame nous donne du bon fromage
3: qu'on nous vend partout en tout petits morceaux. C'est la rit,
1: c'est la rit pour la plus grande joie de tout le pays.
0: So what does he say? for the plus grand plaisir for <laughs> everyone's pleasure, as he says, yeah, really important during wartime um, during the Second World War, the Vichy government was rationing
1: fat, um, mm. you know, to keep calories in, I guess, so no more butter and milk. So the company started making a product out of the cheese rinds that could be bought without the ration cards. Mm,
0: which may explain the rumor that Vashkiri is not made of real cheese at all.
1: Yeah, but that was a different product, but um, you know, it's true, it may have bled onto there because Vashkiri itself really is real cheese. After the war in the 50s, the recipe was refined, enhanced, Um, different cheeses were added, apparently mimolette and gouda now into the mix, far from the original recipe in 1921, but definitely made with real cheese. Mm. Um, Today, the Bell Company is a massive multinational company making all different kinds of cheeses. Um, Vashkiri is sold in 120 countries, only
0: part of the production is still made in France, in the Jura. You know, Sarah, usually I would turn my nose up at processed cheese because I'm (laughs) a a bit of a snob. But because it doesn't have to be kept in the fridge all the time, Vashkiri crops up in the most unlikely Mm. places. You know, I first tasted it when I was trekking in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, uh, which it's not really famous for its cheese. And I True. can tell you it was absolute bliss to, to land on the little triangles, have a bit of salt. It was like ah. manna from heaven when, you, when you're out <laughs> trekking. Well, I mean, it turns out actually the biggest consumers of Veshkiri apparently are
1: Moroccans mm. and Algerians, followed by the French, interestingly. And there's, there's actually an interesting cross-cultural use of Veshkiri here in France with cheese none.
0: Yes, it's on the menu in Indian restaurants here. I've eaten it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's claimed to have been invented by the Gupta family from Mumbai, who opened one of the first Indian restaurants in Paris in the mid-70s. And they made their naan with veshkiri, and it became a thing that you could find all over uh, France in Indian restaurants now. Um, another interesting laughing cow Origin story in the United States, apparently demand exploded in the mid-2000s after the South Beach diet recommended eating a piece of vashkiri as a snack. Lose weight.
0: Yeah, lose weight by eating cheese.
1: The recipe apparently changes depending on the market, adding vitamins or minerals in one place and less fat in another.
0: So a truly international product.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly iconic, though maybe not the high culture that France might have had in mind as an export product.
0: Mm, You know, the slogan, if I remember rightly, is pour les petits et pour les grands, for kids and grown-ups. So it does have this unifying, cross-generational cheese identity. (laughs) And you know, I've always been fascinated by the way that you can unwrap it so delicately, just pulling on that little bit of red tape so you don't get your fingers messed up or or anything. Um, I think it also has a bit of a French sophistication about it when you come to think of it.
1: Sainte Hélène La vague vient La vague part Le bateau du
0: courrier ramène Ma mémoire de Sainte Hélène Mon corps se sera pour plus tard Je suis étendu
1: Alison, I want to take you now to one of the most remote
0: places on Earth. Well, Sarah, seriously, with this COVID thing, anywhere you can take me outside of Paris <laughs> at the moment would be welcome.
1: <laughs> well, we're headed to St. Helena. It's a tiny volcanic island in the South Atlantic, about 2,000 kilometers from the coast of Angola.
0: A British overseas territory, in fact.
1: Yep, British, but its most famous resident
0: was French. Ah, You got it. Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He spent his last days there, didn't he?
1: Yeah, before his death and after his defeat at Waterloo and he abdicated as emperor in June of 1815, he was at first planning to escape to the United States. He didn't manage to do that and ended up surrendering to the British. And they decided to send him to St. Helena because the previous year he had managed to escape from the island of Elba in the Mediterranean after his first abdication.
0: Yeah, so the British were taking no chances with their prized prisoner, had to make sure he didn't slip out of their hands a second time.
1: Exactly, because St. Helena is really, really remote, not very hospitable, and he was sent there with over 100 British soldiers to make sure he wouldn't escape, and he didn't. He only spent five years there. He died at the age of 52, May fifth, 1821, of stomach cancer.
0: Although some say, don't they, that he was poisoned, traces of Mm -hmm. arsenic, reportedly found in his hair.
1: Sure, sure. But I mean, however he died, in any case, he did die in St. Helena. And um, we're talking about it today because 2021 is the bicentennial of his death, and France is going big on this commemoration. St. Helena was hoping to do the same. There were events planned at Longwood, which is the house where Napoleon lived out his final days. Um, Also at the grave where he was first buried. He was there actually until 1840. Then his body was repatriated to France, put into the mausoleum at the Invalides in Paris, that giant building with the golden dome. Um, These sites have actually been owned by France since 1858, when Napoleon's son bought them for the French government. So the French domains of St. Helena are 15 acres, and today they're overseen by Michel d'Anquan Martineau, who's been the French honorary consul and consul manager of the domain since the mid-80s. St. Helena today has 4,500 residents. It's still very, very remote. They only got an airport in 2018, and before their only link to the outside world was a weekly mailboat. There is an internet, only satellite links, so I spoke to Don Juan Martino via WhatsApp, with only an occasional drop in the line. Hello. Hello. Oui,
2: bonjour.
3: It's a uh, typical satellite.
1: When he first moved to the island, he was actually living in Longwood, Napoleon's house, in the officer's quarters, all this before it was restored. Um, Then, and even in Napoleon's time, it was not a very pleasant place to live.
3: Most of the year, it is extremely damp, extremely gloomy because uh, we are 500 meters high, and uh, we are always under the cloud, and when there is a bit of sunshine, it makes the whole place uh, even more steamy.
1: Not exactly a tropical paradise.
3: No, it was the worst climate of the island.
1: And that was the idea of sort of a punishing place.
3: Not at all, not at all. It was more logistic than uh, being just mean to Napoleon. This side of the island is visible from almost everywhere on the island for looking after a prisoner at the ideal site. What is very important to understand, the house was not made to accommodate Napoleon permanently. When he arrived, London sent the order to build for him a proper house, well furnished, uh, a luxurious house, Unfortunately, the house was only completed about a few weeks before he actually died, uh, so he never lived in.
1: Because he died he died much earlier than anybody expected. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, like he's up on this this hill in the clouds all the time in this damp place, um, being watched. I mean, there there's you know hundreds of soldiers watching him because they're terrified he's going to escape yet again. Um, what was life like for him?
3: It was like a lion in cages. <laughs> the leopard uh, because he stayed at Longwood uh, over five years, uh, five and a half years. And it's um, uh, you can really split those five years into two sections. Uh, The first one is when he was busy writing and dictating, wanting to do the campaign of restoring his title of being ex-emperor and not General Bonaparte. So that was his uh, fight at the beginning. Uh, And when he failed after the uh, ex-La Chapelle uh, Congress, he stopped doing that, and he was much more concentrating into redoing some gardening.
1: You worked on restoring Longwood, and from what I understand, you started yourself, actually, with the gardens, right? Yeah. And then um, recuperating objects from, from the islanders, kind of interesting there. Um, and you managed to raise money to restore the whole building. So in, in this restoration project, what do you see as important about this part of Napoleon's history, his whole political career was over. But for you, what, why is it important to, to remember this? And what is important about this part of Napoleon's history?
3: Napoleon is one of the main figures of the French histories. And uh, of course, wherever he have been, he attached his name to it. And Longwood forever will be associated to not, not only Napoleon history, but it's also uh, uh, the life of an exile of a politician and uh, a statesman. So... It's it's on its own a story to tell. Somebody who touched the top and fell very deep uh, down, that is a story on its
2: own.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, too, because it's sort of the place also where he, as you even said, you know, he started sort of writing his own history and dictating his memoirs and kind of trying to kind of create his own mythology to some extent.
3: Yes, that's why. So it's it's captivating to see how a man is actually rewarding his own life and sulking in it, actually. It's touching and deeply human because it's so much an abstraction when you think about the Napoleonic Code and all his political accomplishments. But in in some ways, it is right too high for... Uh, ordinary people to look at him. But when you come to St. Elena, he is a human. He is an ordinary man dealing with uh, his own fall. And then you can relate to personal feeling and uh, human feeling it's very important uh, to be able to keep some distance with your subject if you are doing my job because let's face it napoleon is a very polemical character uh, so i stay away from any polemics imagine if you find that napoleon is, is a dictator or you are you are much more on the negative side of the man And then you will try to uh, convince people to visit the site uh, or vice versa. If you feel that he's a hero, then you will present everything to praise him. And my position here is uh, I don't have a strong opinion in either way. And I am just reinstating the house as objective as possible to its original state of the 5th of May 1821. When you visit Longwood House, uh, you only visit a house of a man who died yesterday.
1: So so this year, 2021, was supposed to be a big year with the bicentennial of the death, and there were going to be lots of visitors, presumably, and, and a commemoration. COVID, of course, has made that difficult. In general, what has it been like to be on a very remote island during the COVID pandemic?
3: It's almost like a double uh, confinement. Uh, we are already cut off from the world, uh, but uh, we are also confined by the rest of the world by uh, restriction for no more flights, no more ships, no more nothing. But that said, we were also at the same time very, very, very fortunate because uh, during the last 18 months we were not wearing a mask, uh, we were walking around, we were kissing each other in the street, uh, we were shaking hands, and we were uh, the life, but simply there was no. Outsiders, they were. We were just between us islanders.
1: There was no COVID. It didn't make it there.
3: Yeah, no COVID. The COVID, uh, it's quite something.
1: So then, how is the? How are you dealing with the bicentennial? So what? You know, because I I know there were events planned and that kind of thing. You probably a lot of the economy was counting on the tourism. What's Plan B?
3: Economically, uh, it was a disaster. So, but. We are hoping that, on the fifth of May, we will be able to retransmit on live all the ceremony we were planning to do with tourists. Uh, if the satellites are working well, you will be able to see all the ceremony as uh, you would have seen if you had done the trip
0: well. Wow. Napoleon via satellite. Yeah, oh, how times have changed. (laughs) It's interesting though, isn't it, how he, he doesn't want to take too much of a stance on Napoleon.
1: Yeah, I mean Napoleon is a controversial figure, to say the least, right? On the mm-hmm. one hand, so much of France today, our laws and systems are put in place by Napoleon.
0: Yeah, for example, the so called Code Napoleon, the civil mm-hmm. code, which, you know, defended this idea that the law must be based on common sense and equality and not custom or rule of kings. And and that code wasn't just popular here in France, but it ended up serving as a model for an awful lot of other countries.
1: Yeah, yeah. Napoleon also introduced the French public education system, established universities.
0: He reigned in the powers of the church. He was considered to be a great military commander, if you like, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And up until his defeat in Waterloo, he'd he'd made France the dominant power in Europe.
1: Yeah, which is also the part that's problematic, right? Because he Mm. ruled everything as a dictator and definitely spread France's power through colonialism, reintroducing slavery for a while. So definitely not the most savory of characters.
0: Yeah, so a mixed bag. Uh But he he was a real European, though, I understand. He apparently employed loads of people from across the continent and and helped to bring them on, intellectuals, thinkers, etc. Although he loathed, uh, apparently, the British, and he Mm -hmm. clearly never got over that. And that's it for Spotlight on France this week. Yeah, we managed to do a show without getting too much into COVID corner. Um, That made a, a nice change for us at least. The show was mixed by Cecile Pompiani and if you have any questions or comments, do get in touch. Our email is spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can find
1: us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International.
0: And if you'd like it, then please rate and review us on iTunes and you can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we're taking a little bit of a time off. We'll be back at the start of May. The next show is Thursday, May 6th. Until then, bye. Bye, Allison. Bye bye,
0: Sarah.